Well, this morning is Easter, so we're going to have an Easter sermon. Didn't I already dismiss children? I guess I didn't really. I don't know. Bye, children. This morning is Easter, of course, so it's an Easter sermon. But first, we need to talk about your insanity. It's true. Yes. We need to talk about your insanity. You see, all of us are a little crazy. Or maybe a lot crazy. This is one way of of looking at sin, looking at sin as a disease. It's a metaphor. It's It's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but think about it for a moment. We are there, our representatives, as it were, are there in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are there in the Garden of Eden, and they've got, literally, they've got it all. They have They have a beautiful place to live in. They have the animals who are their buddies, right? They name them. They've got each other designed specifically for one another. They've got God walking with them in the cool of the garden. They're they're friends with God. They, They are in deep relationship with God. They have eternity ahead of them. They have all that they could ever want or imagine. And then they go and they make the craziest of decisions. Now, mind you, there is, you know, somebody there who's trying to pull the strings and push them in a direction. But it's nut bar. It's crazy. How could you imagine that an infinitely good, infinitely wise, infinitely powerful God on your side is worse than being on your own? Right? It's the kind of decision that sometimes teenagers make when their brains are damaged because they're teenagers. Right? Like, uh, Kieran, Kieran and, and Aaron have always been like this. Sorry. Well, yeah, since they were born, really, they didn't ever want our help. Kieran has it especially bad. Here it has it especially bad. You'd like try and tell her that there's like a fuzz on your sweater or something like on her sweater or whatever. She's like, leave me alone. Don't touch me. (laughs) I can, I can handle it. I can do it. Do you want help with that? No. (laughs) Right? No, she just doesn't want help. She's, she's now I have to be fair. She's getting better. (laughs) Right. And, and she knows that it's important to be able to receive help. As does Aaron, right? <laughs> He's staring daggers at me right now. So, so maybe we'll have to have a, a father-son talk later, right? But, but you know what? You're not all that different, are you? Right? Right? Okay, so, Dustin. I, I love you. Okay, Lindsay. Lindsay. Let's say I need your help. Are you going to help me? I, I need help getting ready to move. You're going to help me? Awesome. Good. Now, do you need any help? Oh, thanks. I could help with that. See, that's good. That's excellent. That's wonderful. But, 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 
she didn't tell me about that until now, right? And, and the reality is, is that most of you, I think this is safe. You can poke around in yourselves, but I think this is safe. If somebody asks you for help, you're there. You're right there. You're going to help. You're going to give the shirt off your back. No problem. If you need help, you don't ask anybody. You don't tell anybody. You don't want to bother anybody. You don't, your problems aren't that big a deal. You know, you can do it on your own. You can handle it. Right? Right? For most of us, we're a little crazy. We're a little crazy. We want to do it on our own. Our whole society has this myth built up that you ought to be strong and independent. That everybody ought to be somehow like an island, a rock, right? But that's, that's crazy. It's, it's crazy not only because it's a foolish idea, it's a bad idea, but it's also crazy because it's impossible, it's impossible. How many things, if you think about it, are actually completely out of your control? Like pretty much everything. There is very little. If you take a rational, objective view of your world and yourself, how much do you actually control? Pretty much nothing. You, you can maybe, you could say, perhaps, maybe, that you have some control over some of the decisions that you make. Now, mind you, psychology and biology and chemistry would all sort of argue that, mm, not sure how much of that control you have either. And so we delude ourselves, along with Adam and Eve, into thinking somehow that we have control. Of course, in the days surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection, the disciples hopefully had a lot of that or a lot of that delusion stripped away from them. Let's look at John chapter 20, shall we? John chapter 20, and I know it, it's long to read the whole chapter, but we are going to read the whole chapter because we want to get uh, a little bit of the picture as John paints it of what happened on that day. So this is, uh, this is John chapter 20. We're starting uh, the first day of the week, of course, is what? Sunday. Yeah, Sunday is the first day of the week, right? Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. Of course, that being something that had been done out of her control, right? She was going to go and she was going to uh, take care of Jesus' body. Um, although, as, um, as we heard at the, uh, the sunrise service this morning, uh, that was... She didn't know how she was going to get in there to get, the, to get at Jesus' body because of the big stone. But nonetheless, she was going to go and take care of Jesus. And she comes and the first thing that she has no power over is done. That she has no power to remove the stone, but it is removed. So she comes running back to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved and said, we'll just pause here for a second. Uh, the one Jesus loved is, we think, uh, the author of the Gospel of John, which is John himself. Um, and uh, it's, it's that 
awesome thing where he stands constantly in awe of the reality that Jesus actually loved him. And so he's like, uh, <laughs> Jesus loved me, right? Wow, right? Something that he also didn't have any control over. Anyways, um, the one Jesus loved they, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have powerlessness, hopelessness, no control. Jesus is gone. We don't know where he's gone. He's dead. We thought he was our Messiah. This is terrible. So, Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb, right? Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John gets there first, right? But as we read in just a moment, John doesn't go in as quickly. John's just standing there in shock, maybe, or or not knowing what to do, out of control again. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Typical Peter, right? It's awesome. He's going to go straight in there. He's going to find out. He's going to do something, right? He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linens. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. But this is interesting. They, they, did, they still did not understand from scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So, so John and Peter are starting to starting to sort of get that something is going on here. And John seems to have grasped that something miraculous has happened here. But they still haven't put all the pieces together, right? They don't understand that that this was inevitable. This was going to happen. This is what was predestined to happen. Then the disciples, that is John and Peter, went back to where they were staying, uh, the house they were staying in while they were hiding uh, from the religious leaders and grieving uh, the death of their Lord and Rabbi and Messiah. Now Mary stood outside of the tomb crying and she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been. Now, there is significance there, right? The two angels sitting um, on the sort of platform where Jesus had been laying, uh, had been laid. Anybody got a guess as to what the significance of the two angels there is? Yeah, somebody, somebody over there said the ark. You, yeah, right, right on. Okay, the ark that was built for the people of Israel had two cherubim sitting on top of the ark facing in towards each other. And, and God is clearly drawing a parallel here between Jesus dying and the ark of the covenant, the covenant, the new covenant with God's people and with all of us, right? This is the same thing in some way. Right? Um, 
Okay. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they have put him. Helplessness. Out of control. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly why that is the case, whether it was just tears in her eyes, which would be entirely reasonable, uh, whether it was simply not expecting to see a live living Jesus, which would also be entirely reasonable, or whether Jesus in his glorified state somehow Uh, radiated um, glory in such a way that it was hard to recognize his earthly form there. Regardless, for whatever reason, she does not recognize that it was Jesus. He asks her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. She is trying to grab some modicum of control in this situation that is spinning so far out of her grasp. She pleads with a gardener, even though it is so unlikely that the gardener would have moved Jesus. Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, we don't fully understand either what's going on there. Um, It has something to do with God's holiness and purity and so on and so forth. But at the same time, we read elsewhere that Jesus offers to Thomas that Thomas can come and touch his wounds. So we're we're not sure exactly what the explanation for all that is. Regardless, that is what Jesus says. um, And uh, no doubt he has very good reasons for it. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. And, and finally, finally, it, there's not control really, but finally there's some understanding for Mary. And, and in the understanding, there is also joy. And she comes back to the disciples and says, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, this is in the house where they were staying, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you, which is probably a really good thing for him to have said, considering, uh, you know, their dead friend was standing in among them in a locked room. Uh, Anyways, so peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. 
And again, we, we don't know the exact details of how things work out here because clearly at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came powerfully upon the disciples uh, in, a, in a way that does not happen here. Pentecost and this day are not equal. They're not the same thing. There's two different happenings. Regardless, in some sense, what Jesus was giving was a promise of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come, right? Maybe you can imagine the Holy Spirit like a train that is coming from far away, right? God breathes on them. It's coming. It's not quite there yet. If you forgive anyone's sins, Jesus goes on, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas who was also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. You see, Thomas seems to want control more than almost any of the rest of them. He wants to know. He wants empirical, scientific proof that this is true. Otherwise, he's not going to get his hopes up. He's not going to let this whirlwind of craziness mess him up. A week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. He relinquishes his control. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. So I have to blame something else on my children, too. This is actually a good one. So uh, quite a number of years ago, um, Kieran, uh, my daughter, our oldest daughter, she, she said, Hey, Dad, have you heard of this band, 21 Pilots? And, uh, and I said, No. And she said, I think you'd really like them. And I said, eh, Well, whatever, right? Anyways, so then like years later, I started listening to 21 Pilots. I'm like, oh, this is really good. And they said, they said, the kids, all of them said, we told you, right? And so it's their fault that I like 21 Pilots. But the reason that you need to know that is because um, 21 Pilots, back in their first album, back in like, I don't know, 2009 or 2011 or whatever, uh, they, wrote, uh, they wrote a song called Addict with a Pen. And uh, in that song, in that song, the, the writer says, my trial was filed as a crazy suicidal head case. But you specialize in dying. You hear me screaming, Father, and I'm lying here just crying, so wash me with your water. 
water. Hello. We haven't talked in quite some time. I know I haven't been the best of sons. Hello. I've been traveling in the deserts of my mind. And I haven't found a drop of life. I haven't found a drop of you. I haven't found a drop. I haven't found a drop of water. See, the author, the writer, he understands. He understands that he's a little bit crazy. That he's a little bit messed up in the head and in the heart, in the soul, in the body. He's messed up. He, he's, his trial, we often think of, of this trial where, where we stand accused of sins and crimes and, and, and that there's some validity to that because it's true. We've got to take responsibility. But it's also true that if we were to plead insanity, that's not entirely invalid because we're little nuts. Because we walked away from the God of the universe, the God who is love, the God who has all the power, all the strength, and we tried to do it on our own, which is a little bit crazy. And so the author knows, the writer knows that, that there's something really, really wrong with him. But God, God specializes in dying. <laughs> God specializes in being God with us. God for us. God who loves us. God who will walk us out of our crazy and into the sanity of who we were called to be. God who will wash us gladly with His water, even as we wander through the deserts of our mind. Brothers and sisters, not only have you been pardoned from your sin, not only have you been pardoned of the the crimes that you have committed against God and against others and against this world, but you have also had your sickness washed away. Right? Who is it? Naaman? Naaman. Right? He, he gets leprosy. Right? He gets leprosy and he's told, he's told by the prophet that he should, it's very disappointing for poor Naaman. Right? He gets told by the prophet that he should just go wash in the water uh, like of the Jordan River, I think it is. Right? Three times or something like that. Seven times. Sorry, seven times. Huh, good job, Pastor Dan. Way to have good Bible knowledge. Anyway, so Naaman goes and nothing happens. First, second, third, fourth, fifth, fourth, seventh. Right? But finally, after that seventh wash, right? He comes forth clean. The disease has been washed away. So too for us. Of course, we don't need seven washes. Seven washes. We need just one from our Lord and Savior. All the crazy washed away. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that none of us have been the best sons or daughters, 
children of yours. We know that we are about as crazy as a sack of mad cats. But at the same time, we long for you and you answer. You have shown us our insanity and you have brought us sanity in Jesus Christ. The control doesn't need to be ours. It is all yours. It always has been. And we can trust in you. So Lord, help us. Help us. Help us to remember that we have been washed in your water. Help us to remember that in you we find more than a drop of life. We find life eternal and perfect and whole. Thank you. Lord, that you sent your Son to live with us, to die for us, and to be one of us from his birth until the end of eternity. Thank you for Easter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.